Let me go ahead and start us off with a psalm this morning, which is um, my favorite. Can you all hear me? Okay, great. Thank you. Um, let me start us off with a psalm that really has is just a favorite of mine um, and connects really well with our lesson. Um, and this is Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a delightful or beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I cannot be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Lord, your Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we can find our complete satisfaction and joy in you. You are our portion and our cup. The boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places, and we have a delightful inheritance because we are in Christ. And there's so much um, to unpack with that, Lord. So many things that are ours because of that, and we're so grateful for it, Lord. I I thank you for the um, opportunity to be with these ladies today. I pray that you would be the one glorified, Lord, that it would be your words that would um, work effectively and effectually in the hearts of these women. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, committing your children to God is the big picture of the second half of our book, under which we find the chapter headings, um, peace and letting go of control, peace in discipline, peace in our kids' physical protection, peace in our kids' salvation, and peace in preparing our kids for the world. Um, and of course, the connecting strand and that Helen talked about so beautifully is that eternal shalom peace of God that rules our hearts, that is where we want to rest. Um, but before we dive into chapter six, um, peace and letting go of control, I want us to kind of pause for a little bit and reflect on this concept of committing our children to God, because I think it's that in itself is, is important. Though my children are grown and some have left the structure of my home, sadly, but they had to. Um, uh, I still, like you, have to commit them to the Lord daily for lots of things. And I'm sure the mentor moms here who have children who are coming and going, some are back in their homes for a little while, um, have to do the same. Um, And so our God and Heavenly Father has given us children as gifts, and what a joyful time that is. I remember um, that first pregnancy test that was positive. I was so excited and really totally shocked that I woke Rick up from this deep sleep and nearly knocked him out of bed. You know, you're not going to believe this. Um, but anyway, this joy only scratches the surface of what is to come, God giving the gift of children. It's really the only the beginning of us giving those children back to the giver. 
Uh, God began this lesson of um, committing my children to God shortly after we were married, and we had no children. Uh, Rick and I were newlyweds stationed at the military academy at West Point. I married a tank officer, y'all. So um, I was 27, he was 32, and we had decided because of a desire to immediately have children that we would throw preventive caution to the wind. Um, And West Point seemed like the perfect place to start a family. We lived along... um, amongst a really strong Christian community. Many uh, people in our officers' Christian fellowship had a staggering number of four, five, or six children. Um, I wanted maybe two or three. Um, Baby making seemed to be in the water stream, um, or so it seemed. As the months passed by and I wasn't able to conceive a child, um, my heart grew really sad, and um, I got the impression that maybe someone had turned off that spigot to my home. Um, I desperately wanted a child. I cried out for a child. I prayed for a child. I fasted for a child. But God saw fit not to answer my prayer, at least immediately. Um, You know, reflection is a good thing. Uh, Reflecting now is my older self getting older, um, on my younger self, I realized there were lessons that I needed to learn in my heart before God would commit those gifts of children to me and send me to that school of child rearing. Um, Some of those lessons were, whom will you trust to give you these children? Where's your satisfaction? Will you be happy with or without children? What is your identity? Will it be mother or one in Christ? What is God's purpose in giving you children if they really belong to him? And so on. As God was the patient teacher, I learned much. I learned that God is the giver of of, um, children. They don't appear here on earth by the will of man. Though they bring much joy, they're not an earthly treasure to bring me happiness apart from Christ. He is my satisfaction, my portion and cup. Though children make us mothers, that's not our identity. Our identity is rooted in Christ. As for the purpose of giving children, though I birthed them and they are biologically mine, they are not for my purposes. My children are a gift to be consecrated to the Lord and continually given back to him. Um, This last thing, committing our children to God, as I was preparing for today, I realized is something we really see throughout the Bible. In the Old and New Testament, the Hebrew babies were committed at the temple at a very, very early age. Hannah committed Samuel to God at birth and for his life in the temple. Elizabeth committed John to God's work, and he ended up, she committed him to the wilderness. And of course, Mary committed Jesus at the temple, and then unimaginably, at the foot of the cross, Um, was the infant who once nursed at her breast, who was now hanging on that cross. Um, And so I want to talk a little bit about what this word commit means in the Bible. The Bible is so rich, as always, in its inspired language, and it gives us some verses with this word that helps us to understand it. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Psalm 37.6 says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. He will act. He will make your righteousness 
shine like the dawn. Sorry, that is the uh, new international virgin version. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday sun. Well, the Hebrew word for commit is galal, and it literally means to roll onto. So think about that. It means to roll onto. As we commit our work and we think of these children as our work, we roll our ways upon the Lord and confidently rely on him for success. We act out of a conviction of faith and a principle of trust in his work to accomplish his plan, declaring like Mary, though we're dealing with that two or three-year-old that will not obey. (laughs) Nothing is impossible with God. Or maybe that older teenager who just is headstrong going into that complete nuclear or whatever, that fire. Um, And she also says, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. This confidence and trust arises from what we know and believe about the character of God. Here we come full circle with the attributes of God that we saw listed in chapter one. And Helen so wonderfully and gloriously taught us what she taught. So what does it look like practically to commit our children to the Lord? And um, we'll go through a couple of things and then we'll move into the chapter. Let me start here at the beginning. We commit our childbearing to the Lord. We've all had those questions posed to us. When are you going to have children? How soon are you going to have another baby? Are those all yours? (laughs) Or as in my case, when we told my mother-in-law, who I adored, I loved her, we were pregnant with our fourth, she said to my husband, can't you give that girl a rest? (laughs) These questions, and she loved our children. These questions are really awkward. And I don't know how many children you're supposed to have, um, but God does. Um, This situation was taken to an extreme, causing a crisis of faith and a new convert in our church in Philadelphia. So much so that she set up an appointment with our senior pastor with an urgent need. And of course, we thought, Is it cancer? Is someone dying? Um, Nothing like this at all. This need came from an awareness that many strong, godly women in the congregation that she had just joined had multiple children and were still having more, feeling inferior and very anxious with only two children when she met with the pastor. She asked in earnest if anything was wrong with having only two children now that she was a believer. Should she start having more kids Um, like so many other women in the church, you know, as silly as this sounds, maybe you find yourself wondering about how many, and maybe even feel the pressure sometimes to have more. Um, let me say we commit this to God as the creator and giver, as you and your husband seek him, he will answer. Um, number two, committing our children to God is not a once and done thing. It's both a heart posture that we, um, live out through every season of our life, um, as we'll be mothers for the rest of our lives and action. We practice day by day, committing your children to God is a fruit that encompasses all seasons and circumstances. So we commit a baby to healthy growth and development. We commit to God training that toddler that may take two hours to learn a lesson on the floor. Um, we commit uh, school-aged children, whether we're, we're schooling at home or we're, they're going off to school, their education. We commit um, a massive 
teeming hormones with a teenager, um, steering and training, trying to prepare them for adulthood, helping them discover their gifts and callings. And eventually, and we don't think it'll happen because sometimes the days are really long, um, we're going to commit our adult children to a spouse with whom they'll live with for so many years longer than they ever lived in our home. And it will forever, in a good way, change your relationship with them. Um, number three, because our children have an heavenly father who owns them, we commit our children to God for his purposes and plans. And sometimes this involves dying to self and laying our will alongside his because we have certain things we might want for our children that maybe God does not. But we have to remember that they're gifts and we are simply here to shepherd them and train them and steward them. We commit our children to train them according to God's word. Um, when you get a new appliance, and I'm going somewhere with this, when you get a new appliance, a manufacturer sends you a user's guide, right? So it's obviously important that we use the correct guide with the correct appliance. I couldn't use a dishwasher guide to repair my oven. Um, well, God's word is the user's manual and training guide for all we will ever need to know. His word is intended for us to, to, to help to direct us, but it's also intended to be poured into the lives of our children. Someone said to me one time, fill your children up full with God's word um, daily to help them grow in godliness and wisdom, preparing them to be the next generation of Christian Christians giving testimony to God. And finally, we commit our children to, to God's daily glory and their future glory. As a new mom, I sat with eight to 10 other moms around a dining room table 25 years ago <laughs> um, in a modest, comfortable home. After four years together, I gleaned so much from those other moms and especially Lois, a mother of eight and our study leader. I'll never forget something she said one fall Tuesday morning. She said, ladies, you know, your children are the only thing you are taking to heaven. And let that sink in. Your children are the only thing from this world you are taking to heaven. The house, the car, the job, the garden, the perishable things of this world, although very good and very necessary, are fleeting and will fade away. So let's walk down this road a bit. When you're preparing for a vacation, I love vacations with our family, um, it takes weeks of preparation, itinerary, clothing, food, travel, what are they going to do in the car so they're not bored and they don't kill each other. Um, if the path of our ch children's journey is God's glory and their destination is heaven, how does it inform us as mothers what we need to do today to prepare them for their future home? So those are just five things in terms of committing our children to God. Let's move into our chapter now, peace and letting go of control, which I'm not going to say a lot about it, but I appreciate her saying that peace and letting go of control. To me, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> peace and letting go of control. It seems, um, I don't know, antithetical or, you know, that can't possibly be true, but it really is. Um, Sarah Wallace says at the beginning of chapter six, if motherhood makes you feel completely out of control, you are in good company. Motherhood, motherhood turns everything upside down. Our homes, our schedules, our ability to predict what's going to happen next. And I would venture to say that we have all created levels of predictability in our lives and children throw it out of whack. Amen. So if you have lived in a home like mine was with little people, 
mess, noise, unpredictability, were all part of just our nearly normal daily Phillips routine. Um, children at inconvenient times placed CDs and toasters through temper tantrums requiring two hours of spanking and discipline. Um, dogs toppled diaper pails of messy diapers. Beads were embedded in children's ears. Noses bled. Limbs were broken. Fortunately, not severed. And all the while, laundry piles got so high, they rivaled the peaks of Mount Everest. <laughs> These are all funny things. Um, and we can all laugh, because we've all been there. Um, and I can really laugh now with my kids, because they can, of course, tell me other things that were happening behind the scenes. <laughs> so it's fun. Um, but of course, <laughs> there were hard things, too. Um, conflict with family, miscarriages, difficult decisions to make. Um, given this data and experience, should we just simply relinquish ourselves to the fact that any control is just impossible and we should never try? And I would like to suggest that actually that attitude is not biblical. Um, we're given commands in the Bible to work out, to train, to fight. These are in direct opposition to what would be a laissez-faire. Remember the word laissez-faire approach? That was a big word in high school, relationship to government, I think. Um, the author's encouragement, however, is to lay aside the temporary peace of control temporary piece of control for the um, eternal piece of trust. And here are two, she gives us two situations where control is helpful. And I'm just going to work through the content of our book. Um, so when is control helpful? Well, she says control can be helpful when accepting the responsibility of being a mom. Control is a necessary part of our calling. And you all know control is not something that organically happens, but takes planning and man management of our day to day. Take, for example, preparing five children and your family for worship on a Sunday morning. You could all have a picture, right? It doesn't matter, even matter how many children you have, just preparing them for, for um, worship. Perhaps you feel like one author who wrote, the song sung by Lionel Richie, Easy on a Sunday Morning, was definitely not written by someone who had ever tackled this challenge of getting a family to worship on time, or they have purged their memories of the trauma so thoroughly <laughs> that they can look at a woman... I'm sorry, because this just still makes me laugh, because I was so there, covered in three body fluids and a peanut butter handprint on her rump, multiple bags over her arms, cascading like bangles, grabbing children, grabbing sippy cups, flailing arms, now along because she realizes, and she did, child number four in a dress is not wearing underwear. <laughs> child number three only has one sock in his shoes. If this is not too much... <clears throat> This poor woman, this poor mom, has now violated the fifth commandment because she wants to murder the woman in the parking lot who just passed by and said with all sweetness and a smile, treasure this, my dear. You'll, you'll miss these days. Um, yes, we can all agree control is necessary for order and structure for a variety of reasons. I've long agreed to the saying, and I'm not sure where I heard it, but if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. I don't mean that to sound harsh, but I found that true in my life simply because a sin-infested world does not produce order, structure, peace, and harmony. So let me suggest taking control begins with taking yourself in hand and embracing the roles and calling God has given you as a child of God. Remember those three? God, then as a wife and a mother. 
um, since all of life is spiritual, these roles um, are a holy calling, each to be done for the glory of God. But fear not. God is up to the task of displaying his power in you. So what might that look on it like on a day-to-day basis or week-to-week to take helpful control? Let me suggest maybe beginning with some non-negotiable things, those activities that are necessary in your home which provide for the basic needs of your family and those that promote an environment for everyone to grow. Maybe having a plan for each day where particular things are accomplished, family worship, laundry, meals, and errands. Um, I can. I found I could better handle the inevitable inevitable interruption or crisis with, when I had kind of a general structure in my home. Even more important than the tasks or the training of children. And on a regular basis, pray about your children. Pray about. Pray with them about their concerns. Pray apart from them about their concerns uh, with your husband and and how to train them each individually. Our author's second point, um, control is helpful when it's part of our God-given wisdom. This wisdom gives us discernment in making choices for our children as well as helping them to learn decision-making as they become emerging adults. This control is mandated by God and is seen in Proverbs when um, the father says to his son, my son, give me your heart so that you might receive wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. And in Deuteronomy, with the command to teach our children the commands of God, equipped with this wisdom of God, um, we gain control that honors him, And that wisdom illumines our path and helps us to do the calling that God has given us. But control can hurt others as well. Control can be hurtful when it's all about me. How will I look if my child does this? What impression will people get of me? Um, uh, Can I produce the right outcomes if I don't have control? What if I'm judged and found lacking? Can I really tell people I'm a homemaker? Domestic engineers so much sounds so much smarter and interesting. This fear of man disguised as control inevitably brings misery to my family rather than blessing. One practical application here that our author shares generously with is just discipline of our children. And we all know that discipline that can be hurtful is discipline that's just simply done for our needs, for our comfort, for our pleasure, rather than discipline that brings life to our children, trying to help a child who has um, rejected God's authority uh, and needs to be restored to the Lord and his behavior um, and, and repent and then turn his heart turn to God. Um, control is also hurtful when it replaces trust, when we're just simply trying to do everything in our own strength. Uh, and sometimes it's even things, we're trying to gain things that God has even promised that are good. I call this maneuver um, in my home um, pulling a Hagar. Um, I call it pulling a Hagar. You know the story. Sarah, in old age, though barren, was promised a child, but she believed maybe she could help God a little bit and take the matter in her own hands. And so she pestered Abraham and convinced him to have a child with his maidservant. This has to be the one that God promised, rather than waiting for the one that God would give. And unfortunately, this launched future unhappiness um, between nations, um, and it might not do 
a future unhappy, we might not launch future unhappiness between nations, but what we're doing is not going to produce peace. It's going to produce strife. Um, there's no happiness and satisfaction apart from God and waiting on him to give those things that he wants to. Proverbs 3 shows us a better path. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Um, next section is when to work and when to rest. Um, I love a teaching anatomy. My, Dr. Hess taught me through its um, study, we marvel at the glory, wisdom, and creativity of God. Electrolytes, blood pressure, so many things in our body work together in a complete balance. And when those things are thrown off kilter, our body breaks down. Metabolic processes um, break down. And I think it's similar with this tension between work and rest. And our author says... Um, with this tension, it's not so much about doing equal amounts of work and rest. It's about doing both at the same. And I think what she means is that rest and work happen simultaneously. Rest becomes a vessel or a vehicle through which we do all of our work. In this way, resting is purposeful and not passive. It should not conjure up the image of a woman sitting in front of, we used to say Oprah, eating bonbons, you know, or just laying there and saying, okay, whatever. Um, resting takes place amid all the activities of any given day with our eyes firmly fixed on our Savior, accomplishing what he would like us to do, um, and looking to him out of faith, not fear. And I think a helpful question for myself, and it has been for Rick too, is am I doing this because I'm afraid or am I doing this because I've prayed and I think I'm faithfully putting the next foot forward? Another thing that the author, her husband said was, have you done everything reasonable? And yeah, well then trust the Lord. You know, even if it's not maybe an outcome, then you can trust the Lord for that. A couple of, and I've got to, I'm going over time. I'm going to kind of move this a little more quickly. A couple of scriptures I find helpful if you want to jot them down. I won't read them are Isaiah 26, 3, Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I am God. Matthew eleven twenty nine, which is take my yoke upon you. And Psalm 131, my heart is not proud. Those are a couple, 131, one, those are a couple of, of scriptures. Um, last section in our, in our chapter is keep a quiet heart. As Sarah Wallace has been, I've been so blessed with the words of Elizabeth Elliot um, and the book, keep a quiet heart. I gift it to our college, excuse me, high school seniors who are graduating. I hope they take it off to school and we'll read it in their devotions. Um, and the author quotes from Eliot's book, every assignment is measured and controlled for my eternal good. As I accept the portion given, other options are canceled. That's the hard part. <laughs> um, decisions become easier, hearts clearer, and hence my heart becomes expressively quiet. So it's that idea of accepting the portion that God gives, but it might mean subtraction because other options that maybe we wanted or we thought would, would pan out don't. But Whatever it is, it actually makes it easier. And our hearts are clearer. We have this undivided heart, and hence my heart becomes quiet. Um, how do our hearts remain quiet and still when fear and anxiety creep in and we are tempted to work frantically to seize the reins of control? Our hearts remain quiet through the abiding work of Christ. He's the vine. We are the branches. He promises to bear fruit in us. Every cry of our heart is met with a gracious response. And this takes us full circle to Helen's teaching with 
knowing who God is, knowing those attributes of God. And if you want to go back for a refresher, and I'd encourage you to do that on page 24, the the author lists those. And so we can say, God, I am weak, I say. And he says, but my child, I'm all powerful and will display my power through you. God, I say, what will happen if I don't make the right choices for my child? And he says, be still and trust that I'm the sovereign God working all things together for the good of those who love me. And I love your child more than you do. God, I lack wisdom to raise my children. But my child, he says, my promise is sure. I grant abundant wisdom to those who seek it. I won't be your teacher. God, how may I die to myself or my child when I'm so selfish and, frankly, counterculturally doing the work of mothering just is really hard? And he says, my child, through my death, you will learn the principle of death to self, giving way to life, bearing much fruit, and the world's opinions will become less important. We need to know who God is is. It is so important. And actually, frankly, it's how we pray. It informs our prayers. It's so important for so many things. So with this divine help, we can control our responses as listed in the chart, excuse me, on page 94. I can keep a quiet and gentle spirit, not apart from Christ, but with him. I can give a soft answer. I can, excuse me, praise God that my times are in his hands. I can work heartily for the Lord. I can trust the Lord in all my heart. In conclusion, God has given us children as as gifts in partnership with him for his glory, plans, and purposes as we cease and um, strive to meet the demands of mothering with our own wisdom and hands. And I know we've all been there. We find the overflowing cup Psalm 16, you are my portion and my cup. Complete satisfaction. Um, We find that overflowing cup of provision pouring into our hearts and lives from our Heavenly Father. If our earthly fathers know how to give us gifts, how much more our Heavenly Father? He promises to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. So let me leave you with these words from our book. We have great demands but Christ has great supplies. Open your hand to him and trade the temporary peace of control for the eternal peace of trust. That's it for today. Let me pray for us. Father God, we are so grateful. So, so grateful. You are our portion and our cup. And you promise to hear every cry of our heart and to make provision for everything that we need. I pray that we would know and rest that today and it would help us to um, abide in that peace, that shalom peace that you desire, confident and trusting that you will fulfill your plans and purposes for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.